Welcome to the Outward OPC podcast. This episode is a little bit different from normal. We did an interview with Eric Watkins on video a couple of years ago. There was a lot of response and we had some requests to turn it into a podcast. So we did that and this is part of that interview. You may notice a note of odd music or two as we splice the interview together. If you haven't watched the video on the website or it's been a while, give it a listen for many helpful topics as we jump right in. So let's shift gears a little bit. I know you've done study on postmodernism. Um, can you tell us a little bit of what, what the circumstances and details of that study is and then how you see that relating to the church as a whole and some of the things that we've been talking about? Yeah. So after I graduated seminary, I moved to Orlando and was there for seven years, pastoring, church planning, did a THM in Reformation Studies and wrote on a figure named Gardis Voss, uh, old Dutch guy that I liked a lot and named my son after, only the middle name, Voss, uh, for my son. And then at the end of that, uh, we you know, were up here and the church was doing well. By God's grace, I began doing PhD work in Holland. Um, on the topic of preaching Christ in the Old Testament in a postmodern context. Uh, <clears throat> my original interest was the role of Hebrews 11 in what's referred to as the redemptive historical preaching debate. Uh, two sides of this debate on preaching from historical narratives were appealing strongly to Hebrews 11. My promoter <clears throat> in Holland pushed me to think about what relevance that debate has in a postmodern context where categories like history, authority, and truth are gone and people are almost post-Christian, let alone uh, uh, disinterested. Uh, so it became pretty fruitful. At first, I hated it. I was reading Dutch books on postmodernism was not a whole lot of fun. Um, but it actually proved to be a pretty meaningful exercise. I think one of the big surprising things to me was how much it told me about myself. Like I am, you know, Gen X kid born in 1972. In a sense, I embody the generational narrative, that little slither of time that postmodernism supposedly is, well, that, that's me. Explains my childhood, my teenage years, my musical preferences, a lot of the dumb stuff that I've done, a lot of the intellectual wrangling that I've done, that my peers have done. And so I didn't realize how autobiographical the study would become, but it was. But it also, I think, made me come to terms with a lot of what's going on in the church is a result of postmodernism as well. Sometimes we talk about postmodernism as the boogeyman outside the house. I, I think it's got a bedroom down the hallway and it's taken root and is welcome at the table. And that a lot of what is going on in conservative evangelicalism in America in terms of the recent trends in church that are replacing whatever was done like 15 minutes ago is largely a result of postmodernism within the church, and again, to use the phrase, generational narcissism, where the church keeps rewriting its own identity. It keeps trying to reinvent itself, and rather than inheriting, it's inventing, and somehow that's the test case of whether or not something is authentic. In my mind, this is a train wreck. I mean, this is like people, imagine doing this in the medical field, where you just abandon you know, any sense of history and technology and precedent and say, hey, I've got a scalpel, I guess I'll be a brain surgeon. It, it, to me, it's quite concerning, but I think we need to be aware of it and interact with it uh, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, as a parent with, you know, pre-prebescent kids, I have to have things like media technology and the accessibility to worldwide ideas that my kids run circles around me and you know, if I let them and the ability to navigate stuff on their iPad and et cetera, and just the mentality 
of kids, young people, millennials, outside the church, but also inside. What's interesting to me on this subject is in our church, and this has been the case for a while, <clears throat> the most conservative-minded, theologically bomb-dropping right-wingers uh, that want to negotiate not at all on things theological are mostly younger people. And it's a number of my older folks <clears throat> who went through, at least over the years, uh, who went through the church growth movement and kind of have that mentality at times uh, who are a bit more elastic, if not pushing me in areas I'm just not willing to go. So I, I think I want to kind of pop a balloon or uh, dispel a perception uh, that it's simply young people that are pushing the envelope. I think the church growth movement and even those that argue for traditional versus contemporary worship are really just using an unhelpfully postmodern category as well. Their generational preference was tradition. They view the current one as contemporary, and they know which one they like. In my mind, that's a horrible way to talk about it. We need to talk in terms of biblical, theological, and historical fidelity, fidelity and everyone should be willing to surrender their own cultural generational preferences uh, on the altar of Scripture because worship is not foremost about what pleases us. It's about what pleases God, and therefore what we believe from Scripture pleases God ought to be what pleases us. So autobiographically, way back in the day when I was a you know, guitar-playing hippie that becomes a Christian and you know, for a short season you know, played in church and stuff like that, you know, for a long time I found myself gravitating towards things that reflected on my cultural preferences without ever really thinking about the depth of it theologically and where these things came from. That's postmodern. But I think that's what a lot of Christians are doing today, and that to a certain extent we're talking past one another now. It strikes me very often that conversations about something like worship are all about what do people prefer. It's like picking a fast food restaurant for dinner rather than what is pleasing uh, to God, preaching has become all about communication and rhetoric and less and less and less about substance, death, depth, exegesis, you know, things to that effect. So as those who are reacting, I think, to the, the big wave of postmodernism, I think we need to study it and to recognize uh, that, it's, that it's inside the house. It's not just inside the house of evangelicalism. It affects a denomination like the Orthodox Presbyterian churches, our sister churches, and we need to engage it. We need to engage it for the sake of not only reaching the lost, we need to engage it very much for the sake of keeping our own. I also know that um, you have an interest in music, you have a background, uh, shall we say a background in music, or shall we say a, a connection to music? Uh, talk to us a little bit about postmodernism, music, theology, how that all interacts culturally, and, and give us a little insight into what that connection to, to music is in, in your previous days. Yeah, <clears throat> so, so when I was 12, my dad left our family, and I began doing drugs age 12. My mom, we were latchkey kids, you know, mom worked crazy hours, and we started, you know, just doing drugs and surfing and listening to the music that uh, seemed to be the most attractive. It's very interesting to me now going back and looking at the music that I listened to, things like Pink Floyd, or Bob Marley, or Metallica, or Megadeth, um, going on the trail, down the trail here, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, just a lot of the things I got into, slam dancing, Lollapalooza, 
a lot of reggae music. <clears throat> looking back at it, I was looking for things that I could only find in Christ. I was expressing emotions that were very honest and raw. So, you know, the mosh pit, slam dancing, I mean, I broke my arm twice, my nose once. I'm sure I injured and sent many other people to the hospital, slam dancing in multiple settings. <clears throat> I was angry youth. But I think if you look at even just that genre, you know, of grunge metal, Kurt Cobain, you know, that, that could have only happened at a certain point in history, in my opinion, when there was a real crash. You know, if you think about what modernism was and its optimism, we're going to save the world, and John Lennon, you know, imagine no more religion, imagine no more heaven, no more hell. I mean, this sort of hippie ideal that, you know, that secularism is going to save the world. Well, it didn't, right? I mean, a couple of world wars and all of the nonsense later, <clears throat> people are angry, and you can use stronger language than that, and there's a real edge to postmodern music and culture that, that I embodied violently in the mosh pit, and then would go look for peace, you know, just smoke pot, listen to music, and go surfing, the last of which is still a very good thing to do. Uh, so I think in that, in that narrative, going back from me looking at the music, listening to the things I was listening to again now, having studied postmodernism, it's amazing to me how much those musicians, they were the pastors of my soul. They were singing the songs, the hymnody of my spirit that I, that I lived by. And there was something very, I was connected. I, people, we listen to that stuff and identify with it, not because we're just curious about the story, it's because we hear our own story. We identify with the anger of the guy in the mosh pit, Metallica, Megadeth, Nine Inch Nails, all that kind of stuff. We are looking for the peace that you know, hippies went searching after with Bob Marley and the Grateful Dead and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, those things don't satisfy, which makes you all the more angry. So it graduates or spirals down, depending on how you want to look at it. And so for me, uh, I actually find it very helpful evangelistically and autobiographically to talk about the realities expressed in music because they're painful at times, but they're also brutally honest. A lot of the music that I can still play on the guitar and sometimes do uh, <clears throat> recreationally uh, actually tells a very painful story, but it tells the honest story of the soul, and it becomes the backdrop. Like when you go pick out uh, a wedding ring or a diamond, you have this black velvet that a diamond is set upon. I feel like for me, a lot of the secular music that I can still think about and that I uh, listen to, um, it, it reminds me of where I've come from. It tells the story, but it doesn't save me. It doesn't really even help me. Only the gospel in Christ can do that. And so music tells a pretty, uh, a pretty meaningful story. It's interesting now to look at some of the things that kids are listening to which I can follow as easily because it's gotten so fast, it's frenetic, uh, but there's still a real sense of anger. I mean, if you look at popular media fig figures, uh, one of the things about contemporary, I, I guess now we're post-postmodernism, but anger is a really strong feature. Why? Well, it's because we've lost any genuine sense of family. We've lost any spiritual hope in God. We've lost ourselves. Right? I mean, you know, broadly speaking, there's this genuine sense of loss. Loss is what defines <clears throat> postmodernism today uh, for many. And that sense of loss creates a vacuum, and that vacuum leaves room for anger. As I uh, sort of mentioned to you before um, sitting down for this interview, I, I was told coming into this interview about your musical background and 
I was kind of told that um, you've maybe had some circumstances where you've opened the floor to worldview-type questions, life-type questions, and were able to put lyrics to that, uh, to that question or, or, or how people respond to these things. So I actually, I've got some notes here that I don't really think you know the particular details of, but I asked some college-age friends of mine, what are, the, what are the questions that are floating around? What are the questions that people have today? And I thought I'd um, fire a couple off and see if you can uh, take some of that theology and some of those other pastors that you called them, the pastors of your soul yeah. before you were a Christian. Uh, what are they, who, who's preaching to the, to the people that have these types of questions? So we're just going to do a little rapid fire and, and see how you do. Uh, why is there so much evil in the world? It's tough. <clears throat> so evil, anger, you know, to me, I'm immediately thinking Metallica. My dad was a Vietnam vet. If you listen to some Metallica, there's this, uh, there's this imprint, uh, this uh, influence of military soldiers who go off, you know, darkness imprisoning me, all I see, absolute order, I cannot live, I cannot die. The, the sense that everything has been stolen from me, stole my innocence, stole my youth. I go to fight a war I don't believe in. They've stole my uh, sense of confidence in what it means to be a human. I come back home. There's no place for me. He stole my home. So what emerges out of that <clears throat> is a really fast-moving guitar and drum pedal that beats to an angry drum. And I think that music uh, embodies the anger of my youth with a great sense of loss. I think it embodies the anger that many people feel today. What's interesting, though, is you can listen to Metallica all day long, and the conflict is never resolved. So you can ask the question, why is there evil in the world? And you, know, you can't just answer that with politics. You can't just answer it uh, with hype. At the end of the day, you have to account for deeper realities, the reality of sin. Sin is in the world, and it's ugly, and it hurts, and it leaves its mark. But music won't fix that. <clears throat> I can go slam dance all night long and I'll have some measure of endorphin release and feel therapeutic and I'll wake up in the morning and be just as angry because all that loss is still there. So the only thing, you know, what can take away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And there's a reason why I would say, if that reason, that our, our music, even as we think about uh, church and, and worship, there's a reason why we don't have grunge metal in church. We have almost everything else and somebody will probably email me and say, yes, we do, it's over... Here, <clears throat> but there's a certain measure of emotion and anger embodied in that that's flowing out of this question. The evil that exists in the world makes people angry. Even non-Christians are angry about it, but you can't fix it through politics and bureaucracy. Only the gospel can fix that. And for me, that anger was part of the stage that was set providentially uh, for me to begin looking for new pastors. And maybe the response to that, when people encounter so much evil, they don't know what to do with it. They're looking for an escape. That's kind of their their response. Why are people always looking for escape, or why is that their response to evil? Do, do, do lyrics, do songs come to mind that expressing that desire to escape these things? Yeah, it makes me think of uh, you know, like the Pink Floyd language of you know, being comfortably numb. Uh, you know, in that particular version of drug culture, and Pink Floyd to me was a big band when I was in high school, juxtaposing that with Bob Marley, Grateful Dead. <clears throat> that was all the smoke pot, drop acid, you know, looking for, it was, a, it was a version of a counselor or a therapist that would try to just, 
you know, bring down the anxiety. So if the mosh pit, you just, you know, your veins pop out and you go hit somebody over here, it's you smoke pot, stare at a tie-dye blanket, or just, you know, go sit on the beach for a long time and you're looking for an escape. The problem is it's an earthly version of eschatology from which you always have to return. You think you're going to get high, you think you're going to experience a little taste of heaven, but you always come back down. I should mention, it's kind of funny story, is I was following the Grateful Dead around the country for a year. I haven't grown up in the Bible Belt. I recognized some biblical vocabulary, and I remember hearing phrases used to describe the people, the life, the experiences of the Grateful Dead that were clearly plagiarized from the church. And everybody get really excited about the conference or the concert. Jerry was like Jesus. I mean, literally, it's, it's, you know, people were following Jerry like he was Jesus. And yet the next day, they had no hope, right? But people who followed Jesus did. And so in my mind, there was a real honest, yeah, everybody's looking for hope, and it's the next concert, and we're going to get high. And if you need a, t- a ticket, you, you, know, you hold up your hand. It's, I guess it's like a Baptist altar call. <laughs> and you, know, you say, I need a miracle. Um, you know, if you get a ticket, you got a kind ticket. If you needed a falafel, you'd ask for a kind falafel. The people were called the family. Jerry was really treated like Jesus. But you just do this over and over and over, you know, crash and crash. And so even for a wannabe hippie 20 years too late, you know, those crashes after a while just became unpleasant and all too predictable. It dried up and left me just longing for something that could only be satisfied uh, in Christ, you know, genuine peace, not hippie pot smoking peace, genuine peace that could only be found in Christ. And I think the extent that a kid like me was looking for it, you know, 20 plus years ago, how much more secular kid on the streets now, uh, where things I think are even more painful, like there's very, there's not nearly, you don't have the same sort of hippie movement, right? I think the streets now are in a sense harder, harsher music, harder, harsher options are harder harsher, to be a young lady today, harder, harsher environment, and a lot of pain. And yet we have the only thing that truly cures, which is Christ. Yeah, so um, each of the friends I asked brought up this question, and I'm not sure if it'll spur different lyrics. It's kind of related, but they each said, ask him why there's so much anxiety and depression in young people today. And again, they, they knew what I, what I was asking you, that he could put song lyrics in theory to this. So does that uh, bring anything to mind or a different style of, mu- of music? <clears throat> so much anxiety. Yeah, I think of, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure I'll put it quickly in lyrics, but I, I think what people sense is they're, they're really lost. Nobody knows where they're going. There's a genuine sense where people's lives are defined by a sense of ambiguity, uncertainty, you know, it's, it's the long and winding road that leads to nowhere. That's a lyric. Um, you know, and, and there are lots of different versions of that. It's in country music. It's in Sheryl Crow. It's in The Grateful Dead. Uh, it's in more laid-back expressions. And I think what people are saying is because we've lost our sense of history, we have no clue about our future. We've cut ourselves off <clears throat> from the rope, and now we have no idea where this boat is going to drift. And so that sense of fear and anxiety about the future is because we have lost all confidence in the past, which is a, a secular version of history that gets embodied in music all the time. Uh, so there's an irony, I think. Because on the one hand, <clears throat> we celebrate 
the idea of rebelling against our parents about not trusting the Bible, not trusting the church, not trusting you know, the government. We celebrate our autonomy and rebellion, and then we go home and cry because we have no one to lead us. In our heart of hearts, uh, <clears throat> we, we have no one to follow who's actually worth following, who's leading us any place worth going. And so you know, the one who aims at nothing hits, and they hit hard. And I think that's what drives that sense of anxiety. That's interesting. That's good. Um, a lot, lot to think about there, and maybe, uh, maybe next time you host a conference, we'll do a little, uh, do a little follow-up and, and do that. But thanks for taking time and, and thinking through these things, and uh, blessings on your ministry. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today's episode. You can go to the website at outwardopc.com to check out more resources, and you can sign up for our email list where you will receive notifications when new things are available. Until then, we'll see you next episode.